0: For our next two Discover the Word podcasts, we're going to talk with author and biblical scholar Randy Richards about the Apostle Paul and first-century letter writing and
1: likely how different that was than we imagine. Most of us imagine Paul writing like our grandfather would have written a letter. Hmm. You sit down at a desk, and we give him a candle, and we give him (laughs) papyrus and a pen, and we imagine he sat down uh, one quiet evening, started writing to the Romans. When he finished, he signed it, rolled it up, handed it to somebody to mail off. And what I like to say is pretty much everything about that image is wrong. Um, And so
0: what was the process of writing letters in the first century like, and, and why does that make
1: a difference? Again, Randy Richards. I think it will help us to really appreciate Paul's letters, the amount of energy, time, even money that went into writing Mm. these. He valued them, and we should value
2: them.
0: Pull your chair up to the table and begin a fascinating series of conversations about Paul, the letter writer, on Discover the Word. And we're going to learn a lot over the course of these next two podcasts as our friend Randy Richards joins regular Discover the Word group members Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. For this focus on first century letter writing and how knowing what that process was like can help us appreciate and understand better the letters that make up so much of the New Testament. Now, of course, Randy Richards has been with us before here on the program. I think Bill will mention how helpful his book, written with Brandon O'Brien, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, has been to us. And our conversations about that subject are definitely worth going to the archives on our discovertheword.org website and listening to. But in these next couple of podcasts, we'll build on that idea. Randy's done extensive research and written a book called Paul and First Century Letter Writing on how letters were written back in the first century. And I think you'll find these really helpful conversations, lots of questions and lots of new historical and contextual information ahead. So let's get started. Let's listen. as Bill and Elisa and Daniel. Welcome back. Our friend, Randy Richards.
3: Well, Randy Richards, it's so good to have you back. Many of our listeners will remember you from when you and Brandon O'Brien came and led us through conversations on misreading Scripture with Western eyes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're
1: delighted that you could come back and be with us again. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for letting Mm me come. And actually, it's interesting, when I wrote a book on Paul the letter writer, one of the things I began with was by realizing that, you know, I think we imagine... Paul writing letters more from our modern Hmm. Western viewpoint. Hmm.
4: Sure.
3: So a good connection to the Westernized idea that we tend to read Scripture through our filter and our culture Mm -hmm. rather than the filters and cultures of the day. So so you want to talk to us about Paul the letter writer? Is that where we're going? Sure.
1: I think it'd be good for us to imagine how did we get a Bible with Paul's letters in it? We talk Hmm. about the letters of paul and they make a huge portion of the new testament yeah and how did we get from paul the apostle roaming around the roman world to the letters that are in our bible i think Mm.
4: that's great and to also think you know there's kind of a contrast between the gospels and letters and how did Mm -hmm. letters come to be viewed as inspired like the gospels are
1: Right. It makes more sense when we think about, oh, people would want to hear the story of Jesus. Sure. But why would I want to read someone else's mail? You know, my grandmother called that snooping. (laughs) And uh, so why would the letter to the Philippians, why would a church somewhere else want to read that letter? Mm -hmm. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's why you're here, right? Well, I think we're going to kind of start from the beginning. You know, we talked about modern Western eyes. Most of us imagine Paul writing like our grandfather would have written a letter. Hmm. You sit down at a desk. Now we give them a candle and we give them <laughs> papyrus and a pen and we mm-hmm. put them in a toga. But everything else is the way our grandfather would have written a letter. And what I like to say is pretty much everything about that image is wrong.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And today, I mean, we don't even write letters anymore. So mm-hmm. that's, that's an old concept, even
1: in our time.
4: Right. It really is. You know, yeah. maybe a thank you note, but yeah.
1: But we imagine he sat down uh, one quiet evening, started writing to the mm-hmm. Romans. When he finished, he signed it, rolled it up, handed it to somebody to mail off. And that's just not the way the letters mm. went about. Yeah, okay,
3: so we're hoping that you're going to explain to us how they did come about <laughs> uh, and that that it'll somehow give us a better appreciation for the scriptures that God has given us.
1: I think it will help us to really appreciate Paul's letters, the amount of energy, time, even money that went into writing mm. these. He valued them, and we should value them. Mm. Okay, so where do you want to start? Well, let's start with one of his first letters, First Thessalonians. I actually think Galatians is the first letter, but we'll start with First Thessalonians. That works just fine. And uh, we talk about Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. One thing we need to keep in mind, First Thessalonians is first because it's longer than Second Thessalonians. They arrange letters by length, we oh. would do it chronologically. Sure. So we think First Thessalonians was written first, and I would give it about a fifty-one percent chance that it was written first. Fifty-one. I mean, yeah, <laughs> pro- probably maybe <laughs> was written first, but it's the longer one. Yeah. So now all of our listeners already already know which one's longer, First 1 or Second Corinthians. Well, you know, First Corinthians is First, Second, Third John. First John's longer than Second John, <laughs> which is longer than Third John. So they just arranged them by length. And so First Thessalonians, um, it opens up with Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the Church of the Thessalonians. It's actually a very traditional letter opening. It would be so and so to so and so greetings. That was the mm. normal way of doing it. They would use the last name in a letter. Roman names had three parts. We'd kind of call it like a first, middle, and a last name, but they would it would actually be a, a given name, a clan name which represents kind of your history. Mm. And then a family name. And so Paul, that's his family name. His first name, we don't know. In Roman life, the first name was so common, they would usually even abbreviate it, which strikes us as the oddest thing. Mm-hmm. But it would be Marcus or Lucas or something like that. The middle name, the clan name, probably was Saul. So Saul doesn't change his name to Paul. Um, his name was something Saul Paul, or technically Saul is Paulus. And so hmm. it makes sense that his clan name would be Saulus because he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and the most famous Benjamite in history was King Saul. So it would make sense that would be his name, but Paulus would be the Roman name, and Mm -hmm. probably he's related to the Paul clan that was all over Asia Minor at the
4: time. Okay, so wait, I'm thinking his name was Saul, and God
1: called him Paul. Luke is the one who will mention Saul also called Paul, Mm -hmm. or he'll say John also called Mark. That was the common way to give both parts of a Roman name. Mm -hmm. Luke never gives us all three names of anyone. and. Other than Romans, other people in the empire only use the second and third name anyway. So when we look in papyrus letters, they would sometimes have the second and third name, but usually just the third name. So Luke at one point finally says Saul also called Paul, but he does it right after they meet Mm -hmm. Sergius Paulus, who's a kinsman. He's the governor of Cyprus. I mean, when does it normally get to just go in and meet the governor? So Paul has some sort of family connection with him, probably a little bit distant. And he gets a nice hearing, and it's probably Sergius Paulus who writes a letter of introduction for Paul to go up into Asia Minor. He goes up to Antioch in Pisidia if we want to get a little technical. Mm-hmm. And archaeologists have found inscriptions in that area to lands and estates owned by the Paul clan.
4: Huh. But all this is new for me.
1: (laughs) So it's very common to start with Paul as a family Mm -hmm. name. So we say the letter of Paul, and yet Paul in the letter says it's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And we say, that sweet guy. You know, he just likes to include his friends so they feel welcome. (laughs) Well, he does in about six of his 13 letters. So then we think, well, he wasn't feeling as friendly in the other letters, but that's not actually the case. There are no examples in antiquity. When I wrote the book on letter writing, I looked at uh, nearly 14,000 ancient letters, Hmm. Greek and Latin. They just didn't do that. It's Hmm. very rare to have co-writers at all, very rare. Hmm. But when they did, they were co-writers in the letter. So when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, it's Paul and Sosthenes to the Corinthians. Hmm. And there's actually a Sosthenes in Corinth that we hear in Acts. And it, I think it likely is the mm-hmm. same guy. Mm-hmm. And so he probably is the one who brought some of the news from Corinth to Paul. And so they're writing back.
2: Mm-hmm. So I know it's dangerous to do this, but if we pictured <laughs> ourselves going into a bookstore and looking through a bunch of books and we saw, oh, 1 Thessalonians and pulled it off on the front, it wouldn't say just Paul's name. It would say Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, or Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So you'd have like a very equal, like all three of these guys are contributing to this.
1: I think all three are contributing. Now, Paul is the elephant in the room. He's he, the boss. Yeah, he's the boss. Mm-hmm. But I do think they bring input into mm-hmm. the letter, and that sometimes will explain a little bit of the wrinkling that goes on. Second Corinthians has a co-author, Timothy, And it's we all the way through the first nine chapters, about two to one ratio, we to I. And then in the last three chapters, which scholars have long noted have a little bit of a harsher tone to them, it's two-thirds I to Mm one-third we. Mm -hmm. He says, I, Paul, am writing, and we'll talk about that on another occasion, how you got to the end of a letter. Hmm.
3: Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that first-person singular versus first-person plural, because it seems like in a lot of the Pauline literature, that it is first person singular. We read I a lot, and I'm wondering how that works if there are co-authors
1: writing with them. Right. Well, first off, we kind of imagine a private setting. So Paul is writing. So suddenly if there's the three of them writing, then all three of them squeeze into a back bedroom to Mm -hmm. try to write together. Mm -hmm. But they didn't write in back bedrooms. Back bedrooms were small, dark, and they were the private part of a old Roman house. In that part of the world, the house was more public than we would normally think of. In the case of a wealthier person, you'd have a family business up front, and then there'd be a large public dining room, some smaller dining rooms to the side, a big atrium. Uh, I don't know if you call it an atrium, a courtyard maybe, in the middle where it'd be open to the sky. It'd gather rainwater. There'd be a pool in the middle. That's where people tended to congregate. Hmm. It's cooler and brighter and Mm. sunnier, and then in the back would be the kitchen and the latrine and the stables. So when Paul is invited by Lydia to her house, Mm. it's not like what we would have where it's like, hmm, how odd. There might be 50 or 60 people living in the household of uh, Lydia. Hmm.
2: Mm. So speak to the person who's listening, and might be me, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) and is going, okay, this is great there was a couple other people that maybe influenced this a little bit, but Paul was the main guy anyway. Why should we care that there were more people involved than just Paul, even if they were involved to a lesser extent? Sure. As we talk about
1: how the letter is written, it will come in more. But we need to imagine Paul's sitting in a courtyard. We'll talk on another day about the secretary that he would Mm -hmm. be using. And so when he is talking, There are people standing around to watch. Privacy is a modern Western invention. Hmm. Uh, It was fascinating to me when I moved and lived in Indonesia, I found out they don't even have a word for privacy. And I thought, how do you not have a word for privacy? And then after a while, I realized, well, there isn't any. (laughs) (laughs) So you wouldn't need a word for it. And so people are listening, they're interjecting, they're interrupting, they're commenting. And you think, oh, that's a little too chaotic for a modern individualist like me. But for them, Paul would never have thought, I need all you folks to leave so that I can write. This would be a group Hmm. writing. Paul, Silas, and Timothy founded the church in Thessalonica, so it's very appropriate for them to write back. Hmm. In fact, the Thessalonians knew Timothy and Silas better than they knew Paul because Paul had to leave early.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So would you almost say that it makes it stronger to have people like pushing back or throwing in thoughts or something like that like I think about times where I've been preparing for a sermon or something and I end up in a car with someone for a long time and so I'm like they're like hey what are you preaching about this week and we start talking through it and it's amazing how much of that conversation actually makes the sermon better mm, mm-hmm. because they see like a hole in my logic or a verse I didn't think about. Or even just they share a story from their life that like that it becomes the illustration. They give me permission, of course, but that becomes the illustration and makes it better. Would you say that's almost what we see? Here? Yeah, you
1: know, I'd say that's exactly what happens. It's kind of counterintuitive to us as modern individualists. You know, I need everybody to leave so I can write but it's actually more of the process not only that but we'll discover later paul's been trying out pieces of this stuff on yeah. other occasions so yeah. there's been a lot of input they've been talking about it and thinking about it this is not something he dashed off one afternoon
0: okay you're listening to discover the word with elisa morgan bill crowder daniel Orion day and our special guest, E. Randolph Richards, better known as our good friend, Randy Richards. And as you just heard, Randy has extensively studied the subject of ancient letter writing, and we will lean on his expertise as we explore Paul, the letter writer, over the course of a couple of our podcasts. We certainly learned a lot just in that first part of the conversation to challenge some of our assumptions about what letter writing was like in the first century when these letters to some of those early churches were written. Now, in that first segment, Randy suggested that often Paul likely wasn't alone when writing. It wasn't a solo effort. And so next, he's going to introduce us to someone else who was likely there, Filling a common role in first century
1: letter writing, a secretary. We talked before that Paul had co-authors in about half of his letters. Mm -hmm. But when it's just Paul, like Paul to the Romans, it wasn't still just Paul there. Ancient writers always had secretaries. Secretaries were an essential part of writing much like a businessman 50 years ago would have someone to type his letter. In antiquity, ancients did not write, even when they were literate. Hmm. Okay, explain
3: that, because yeah. we think of literate as somebody who is able to read and write.
1: Right. In fact, we often will say read slash write, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and mm-hmm. we think of those things as the same thing, at least two sides of the same coin. There are plenty of kindergarten teachers who would want to clear their throat and say, excuse me, but it didn't really work quite that (laughs) way. They're not born knowing how to write. So in antiquity, literacy meant the ability to read, not the ability to write. Write was a matter of practice. Now, if you could read, you could you know, theoretically, theoretically draw out a, a letter. But it'd be a lot like all of our listeners if we handed them the pen into their opposite hand and asked them to write. They're just as literate as they were a moment ago, but all their letters are now clumsy and awkward, and sometimes they even will draw the letter backwards and that sort of thing, because we're just not used to writing with the opposite hand. Well, in antiquity, it's like both your hands were the opposite hand. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think a businessman from... Not too long ago is a good example because I, I grew up, uh, my dad was a structural and civil engineer. And so I was always in the car with him when he'd go look at jobs. Mm-hmm. And in between was him on a dictaphone, <laughs> like, and such and such structure, blah, 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 blah. And I had heard a bunch of terms I didn't know and stuff like that. But <laughs> the reason for that was is because... Not everybody had access easily to computers, right? and so his secretary was really good at typing, and he wasn't. Sorry, Dad. It would take him a long time to write something that his secretary could write much more quickly and effectively. And if
1: we had a chance for your dad to be here, he would actually say, Oh, and I will say, I send this to so-and-so and mm-hmm. not give all the titles and you know greet them and all of that stuff. And then get right to the content of the letter because the secretary would know, look up the guy's title, make mm-hmm. sure I got his title right. If he's the vice president or the executive vice president, and to make sure I get all the right formulas, do the niceties. You know, you should say, how are you, even if you don't really care. You know, Everybody a, used them.
4: A question. Were they called secretaries?
1: Basically. I've heard so, the term amanuensis. Right. And uh, the problem is that, uh, they rarely ever used that. Okay. Uh, term. That's too they, would actually, <laughs> they wouldn't really refer to them at all. That's why it's hard to uh-huh. find them. The way you would know is at the end, the author would pick up the pen himself and scratch something out, sometimes just the word goodbye. But if you could do a little more, you'd say, I'm writing this in my own hand, which <laughs> would indicate the other part wasn't in their own hand. Yeah. But when you actually look at Original letters from antiquity. You can tell the first part's written in a nice script. And then at the end, where the author says, I'm writing this with my own hand, it looks like it was written with somebody in the author's (laughs) hand. So it's not surprising in Galatians 6, verse 11, Paul says, See what large letters I'm writing this with my own hand. He's just pointing out his own handwriting is just not all that great. (laughs) And Paul's very literate. But he just didn't write. People in antiquity didn't do that.
3: So for this secretary person, what all is involved Mm, in in their part of this thing? I mean, obviously, Paul, and as we saw in the earlier conversation, Silas and Timothy, uh, in some blend, are bringing the content. What does the secretary bring other than the writing skill?
1: Well, uh, first you have to find one. It's possible that the patron or patroness where Paul is staying might have a servant in the house who serves as a secretary, but that wasn't that common. They wrote letters, but they didn't write that many. And so you would go down to the marketplace. Here are the people that make the pots, and here are the people that work with the fishermen, and you'd find the stall where the secretaries. So you'd (laughs) walk down to the stall and say, I need to hire a a secretary, and they say, okay, we'll send someone, you know, first they'd want to do it right there, and Paul would say, no, I want to write a longer letter than that. Okay, so they'd send someone over to his house. They would show up with a stack of wax tablets. And what are Uh, those? Those are pieces of wood where they've kind of hollowed out the middle a little bit, recessed it down, filled it with wax so that you could write on it. But then, when you were done, you could smooth the wax out. So it was a reusable. reusable, (laughs) Exactly. And it's very common. There'd be a stack. Now, they'd be surprised that Paul would want them to bring quite a little stack with them. (laughs) But the secretary is the one who provided the paper, the papyrus, we call it. uh, The paper. They provide the pen, the ink, all the writing utensils. So they would bring a roll of papyrus out, and then they would measure off how much they thought they needed. And would write on it. But they wouldn't write on the actual papyrus until they were ready to do the the finished draft. The final draft, yeah. They'd
4: use these wax tablets. And they just did that with their
1: finger. No, they would use a... Sometimes, often it'd be a little sliver thing of metal. A little metal stylus, we technically call it. (laughs) And the end of it would be
2: rounded. Mm. So they would... It'd be like the eraser.
1: The first (laughs) iPad, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah.
2: Even access to writing is something we have, like crazy access to. Mm -hmm. Whereas at that time, it sounds like what you're describing is very limited access to writing. Yeah. I mean, Paul's a traveler. He's not going to carry around
1: rolls of blank papyrus when you can buy it down at the market. And they would cut off a sheet and then they would put dots down the sides and get a straight edge and scratch lines (laughs) in the sheet called scoring, that would help them to write somewhat straight, and then the secretary would write underneath. Mm -hmm. They wrote underneath the line. We write on top of the line, but they would just write underneath the line, and so the secretary had to mix their own ink and everything else, but that Mm -hmm. would be done when they were finally writing the letter. So, you know, you would go down like a soldier. There's this great letter from a soldier who's writing to his mom. I made it to Missium. um, You know, I made it to Rome, basically, so Mm -hmm. he's been drafted by the Roman army. I've made it there, and I'm fine. You know, moms want to know that kind of thing. <laughs> but the letter is actually a little bit more formal than that. It has the mom's name and greetings and all those sorts of things and then has the relevant information that he's arrived. And then at the bottom, he scratches his name.
4: So you said that... Paul wrote long, longer than normal letters. Yes. So, you know, just on average, how long would it take a secretary to do all of this? The wax tablet, the mixing the ink, the scoring the papyrus, all this stuff.
1: Well, it would be multiple settings. Okay. And so... Um, I think in a letter like, say, 1 Thessalonians, it probably was not all composed on one occasion. They would write out kind of the meat of a letter or a part that he wanted to write. The secretary would scratch it onto a wax tablet, they'd call it a day, and then um, the secretary would leave and come back with a more polished draft of it, probably still on wax tablets. They would listen to it, make changes, that sort of thing. It reminds
4: Mm. me of the process of painting a portrait. <laughs> you know, where a, an right. artist will come back again and again and again and again. Ex- exactly.
1: And with a secretary, it wasn't just a matter of writing it down. Letters had a certain content to them. If you're making an official petition, you want to make sure you have this piece and that piece mm-hmm. to it. You want to use the phrase correctly. We, we typically make fun of someone who says an idiom wrong. You know, I'm out hitting the sidewalk instead of pounding the pavement. We <laughs> think that's kind of funny. But if you're actually writing a letter, you don't want to look like a goofball and say things the wrong way. And these letters had a very set form to them, huh. a very specific content. And secretaries were trained to make sure you, you got it the right way. And you used examples when you were supposed to use an example, those kinds of things.
2: You mentioned earlier that to see this, most of us would have to see like original letters to see the different handwriting at the end. You did mention um, where Paul says, I'm writing this in my own hand. Mm-hmm. Are there any other examples we have from the letters where we get a glimpse of the secretary?
1: Right. Well, some writers like Cicero and Seneca, these great writers, they knew copies of their letters would be made and moved around. So they were the ones who were careful to say, I'm writing this part in my own hand. so Because they knew once a copy was made, the change in handwriting would be gone. Paul knew when he wrote to the Galatians. Mm-hmm the change in handwriting would be gone because they were all making copies and sending them to these various churches in Galatia. So that's why I think he adds this phrase, I'm writing this part with my own hand. But we actually have in Romans, uh, when the greetings were done at the end, the secretary for Romans apparently knew people in Rome. He has a Latin name. It's interesting. So he slips in a greeting. I, Tertius, who I'm writing this letter, greet you in the Lord. So he was apparently a Christian scribe, and he writes the greeting. And we have an example of that elsewhere in antiquity.
4: So what do we do with, you know, we can tend to theologize, if you will, mm-hmm. <laughs> every little word, right. you know, in, in scripture. And so the example you just gave at the end of Romans, we think, oh, if Paul mentioned these specific people, it means that each one was valuable and each one, maybe this was, we, we go off on a rabbit trail. Are you saying it's a little bit more incidental or a little bit more the personal preference of the secretary well i
1: think the spirit's hand is on everyone involved in this process including on tertius okay paul has never been to rome so it's interesting the one church he's Mm -hmm. never been to has the longest list of greetings 27 (laughs) (laughs) so uh one of the things we find out with secretaries is that they would find the information that you needed in a letter that cicero wrote he said to his friend atticus hey thanks for sending some servants to organize my uh, library that's the part that's in his own hand. In the actual letter, the servants who organize the letter are named, and <laughs> what they exactly did is listed out and everything else. Well, Cicero doesn't know exactly what they did. He just said, hey, thanks for sending these people <laughs> to help me. So I suspect Paul told Tertius, we need to greet all the significant mm. people in the church. So I would agree with you, um, Elisa, that these people are all named for specific reasons, and they're valuable. But that information didn't come from Paul, who had never been there. But from someone who actually knew what was going on in Rome.
0: Yeah, another helpful part of this conversation there, helpful in understanding the process of letter writing in the first century and the role of secretaries like Tertius. And I think helpful also in that today, someone who's a helper at a church may think, you know, I don't have as important a role as a pastor or a worship leader or others in leadership. Like people may have said with Tertius, well, he's just a secretary. But Tertius had an important role, and you do too, even when it's a support behind-the-scenes role. The body needs you to do what you do and to be who you are. And, you know, in our day, when we think about the role of a secretary, we often think of a woman in that role, don't we?
1: And so that prompted Elisa to ask Randy this question.
4: Were women ever secretaries?
1: Not that we know of. Okay. It doesn't appear to be the kind of work that lent itself, probably because you had to go to homes all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there are women who are literate. Mm-hmm. And who can write. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a famous portrait in Pompeii of a man, husband and wife, but she's holding a wax tablet and a stylus, mm-hmm. pointing out, yes, I can write. <laughs> so,
0: Okay, secretaries and their role in the first century letter writing process. Well, a lot of new insight into Paul, the letter writer, already, and maybe what we've discovered so far has made you a little uncomfortable because it kind of feels like this threatens a bit the way we think about the scriptures being inspired. Well, we'll start off the next segment addressing that question of how this relates to inspiration. But first, a word about Randy's book on this subject. Now, just a bit of background on Randy. He is currently the research professor of New Testament at Palm Beach Atlantic University having recently stepped down from being provost after 16 years in administration. He's been teaching since 1986, originally at a state university, and then abroad at an Indonesian seminary. He's also been at a couple of other Christian universities back here in the States before landing at Palm Beach Atlantic in 2006. He has authored, co-authored, and edited nearly a dozen books. And as he'll tell us, he's currently working on a New Testament commentary and one of his books is called Paul and First Century Letter Writing. And so we're having some fascinating conversations with him about this. And I would also encourage you to get a copy of Randy's book and dig even deeper into this subject than we're able to do in the podcast. It's published by InterVarsity Academic and it carries a wealth of historical and cultural research to help us understand the letter writing process in Paul's day and offers an intriguing perspective on how these important pieces of our New Testament came to be. We'll touch on some of the material in the book in our conversations, but Reading Paul and First Century Letter Writing by Randy Richards will provide even more background and application of why this is important to know. We have a link on our discovertheword.org website during the series to where you can purchase a copy. Or if you'd rather, you can just go to your favorite online bookseller and search for Paul and First Century Letter Writing by E. Randolph Richards. encourage you to check it out. And now back to our conversation with Randy Richards about Paul the letter writer and that question about how this might impact our thoughts about inspiration. Okay, Randy,
3: so we're talking about Paul and his letter writing and a team of people and a secretary and mixing their own ink and all this kind of stuff. And what I'm wondering, and I... Have to believe that some of our listeners are wondering this as well is how does inspiration fit into all this? <laughs> I mean, all scripture is God breathed. You have a high view of scripture. I know this from our conversations. So, how does all of this fit in with the doctrine of Bible inspiration? Can I push back
2: first, Bill, sure. before he jumps in? I'm curious what it is about other people being involved that would potentially threaten inspiration or something?
3: Well, because we think about Paul being the author and the original autographs being inspired through that human instrument. You know, First Peter... Holy men of old spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a verse that they. So, go is to. somebody
4: who's writing the words, like a secretary, and then maybe reshapes them according to their personality or what their EQ is telling them, their emotional mm-hmm. intelligence is telling them, are they inspired? Yeah. Is that's kind of yeah. in there? Okay.
1: And I think what's fun in this conversation is we've answered the question already because you started by saying all Scripture is inspired. Absolutely, it's not all writers. Are inspired all scripture is inspired it's the letter in this case like we talked about first Thessalonians that is what is inspired God had divinely prepared men in this case Paul Silas and Timothy a divinely prepared situation where the church in Thessalonica is dealing with all the right kinds of issues that God wants to talk about the things that irritated Paul God prepared a man like Paul to get irritated over those kinds of things and want to say something about it. And so all of that led to a letter that is the inspired document. The secretary, who had a little input like, we'll smooth that out a little bit here, that sort of thing. The Holy Spirit is on the hand of that person as well. In the end, it's the letter that is the inspired document Mm. some of your listeners are aware that paul wrote we think up to four letters to the corinthians well what happened to those lost letters we have lost inspired letters out there Mm. no The inspired documents Mm -hmm. are what we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. If Paul wrote to his mom, which I kind of hope he did at some point, if he wrote wrote to his mom, that wasn't an inspired document. I'm sure it was very sweet. But the documents that we have are the inspired documents.
2: Okay. So that kind of connects with how we would describe, like, a pastor preaching a sermon Mm -hmm. where what he or she says comes across very clearly and helpful to that community And so in a way, we would say what they said is inspired.
1: Yes. And I love that you use that word. A Christian prophet is someone who brings the word from the Lord for God's people at that time. Mm. And by the way, on Sunday morning, if you're not hearing a Christian prophet, you need to find a different church. (laughs) Uh, You need to be going somewhere where someone is bringing a word from the Lord for you. But in most cases, it's a word for those people at that time, inspired by the Spirit. But God has said at certain times, I want a word that's not just for those people at that time, but for all people at all times. And to do that, he specially prepares a messenger, a prophet, and he especially prepares a situation so that that Document ends up being a word for all people at all times.
4: And that's what these letters are that we have in the yes. scriptures. Mm-hmm.
2: How do we take then the fact that they were written to specific communities and specific people, so like the church at Corinth? Right. Um, how do we then know that that was supposed to be for a bigger group of people than just the people at Corinth?
1: Yeah, my students will ask things like, well, what if we found Third Corinthians? <laughs> well, my, <laughs> my answer is, well, first find it. <laughs> um, okay, but then I would say if thousands and thousands of churches worldwide for several hundred years— all said, God is speaking to us through this letter, then at that point, we'd want to open up a conversation about whether or not it's a fire. My students want to vote tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, if they found the letter today, they want to vote tomorrow. But that's not the way it happened. Churches across the empire were all using the same ones. That's Mm -hmm. how they decided that God is speaking to all of us through Mm -hmm. these letters. That's the process of what we call canonization. It wasn't that people got together and voted. People voted all the time. Everybody ignored it. Um, They actually (laughs) voted by, what are we using? Yeah. And if there
3: were copies circulating throughout the first century church and churches, then that shows that there was a recognition that there was value in the content that superseded the particular location it was
1: addressed to. Is that fair? But I want to come back to something Daniel said. He said, you know, how do we know that every one of these words? Well, every word is inspired. They're all God-breathed. But one of the things we need to recognize, it is a letter to specific people. So, you know, my granddad would write a letter, Dear So-and-so, and and sign Mm -hmm. it, Sincerely, Mr. Richards. Mm -hmm. Well, he would say, Dear So-and-so, if he was writing the IRS. And whom he did not hold necessarily (laughs) particularly dearly. So if he had a letter that said, Dear Mrs. Smith, I shouldn't worry that there's some kind of scandal going on. They just start letters with dear. Mm -hmm. And they end it with sincerely, no matter how sincere or not sincere they were in the letter. Mm -hmm. It's just standard parts of writing a letter. Well, in antiquity, they had even more of those than we do. Kind of formula
3: type things. Formula
1: phrases. So if it says, dear so-and-so, how are you? Well, you know, okay, in a letter, you don't really know how (laughs) much they really care. But if my son got a letter from me in college that said, you know, dear Josh, what are you thinking? Well, the fact that there wasn't a how are you kind of sticks out. Uh So in antiquity, they had certain ways of starting a letter. So when Paul writes the Galatians and and he starts out and he says, who's been pulling the wool over your eyes? Well, it would strike them as odd because they didn't have all the usual niceties Mm. at the beginning of Thanksgiving. I'm so glad that, you know, and he doesn't have those things. So it would strike them. So it's helpful to know what are the standard things that were in a letter so that we can tell when. They don't have it or when they do have it. So Paul says, I'm amazed that you have done this or that. Well, in antiquity, that was a very common phrase to say, I'm about to talk about something that's of interest to me that I'm a little upset about. So we shouldn't have sermons about how, wow, Paul was just amazed about this and he was just amazed about that. Look at that. We find this phrase several times in his letters. What we should pay attention to was the what amazed him. You know, I'm amazed that and the content is what comes after the that paul has the phrase what then shall we do this or that that was a standard form of preaching particularly out in the marketplace epictetus has what then should we bathe every day God forbid, you know, and then he talks about, <laughs> <laughs> about this or that. So that kind of phrase didn't really mean anything. It was the content after it that hmm. mattered. It was just an intention getting device. Right. Control. And it, yeah. it was in a sense, I'm asking a question, but the question is really one I'm asking the question. I'm acting like you are. What then you say, should we do this? Well, I'm the one that That's what creates the put dialogue the there. Yes. Yeah. So it's an imaginary dialogue actually. But
4: I years. struggle with I feel like I need to have like a cheat sheet, you know, of all these <laughs> accustomed, yeah. you know, phrases because we tend to when we go into scripture to try and understand it, we we tend to Look at every single word. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, most commentators don't include, oh, here's the here's the list of common phrases. Ignore them. Um, well,
1: I kind of wish they would. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, <laughs> That's and why you got to buy this book. <laughs> a good commentary
1: uh, really will. Now, I'm writing a commentary on John. But, good, good. Uh, when you do that, you don't make a deal about how I'm amazed as a standardized formula. Just in the commentary, you go right to what the heart of the issue is. Paul is concerned that the Galatians Mm -hmm. seem to be forsaking the gospel as they Mm -hmm. got it. And so that's the way you go at the point. And actually, even one of our listeners who's just reading, Paul says, I'm amazed that you so quickly deserted the gospel. Mm -hmm. Well, they go right to the point as, wow, they've left the gospel behind. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we pick up on it as well. But, you know, it it helps to have a little bit
2: of help. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to Elisa's point, (laughs) can you list off... the 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 five or the 10 or whatever (laughs) we need just quickly so that at least when we run into them, we're like, oh, okay. Because they're they're kind of
4: like signposts, you know, the traffic signals. Almost. Um, I can do,
2: you know, I didn't really come that prepared, but let me
1: see, you know, disclosure, I want you to know this or that. That was just a standard phrase. Now we pick up on that That obviously is the part he wants you to know. The old translation was "I beseech you, Mm -hmm. um, I appeal to you." That was a very standard phrase. So when Paul says to the Romans, "I appeal to you, brothers, to present your bodies a living sacrifice," we don't want to make a deal that. Wow, Paul's always begging people to pay attention to this or that. Mm -hmm. No, it's just a standard sort of phrase. Joy, I rejoice in this or that. It was a, a way of just pointing out this is a good piece of news that I got about you, and I'm excited about it. The Mm astonished um the idea i want you to comply with this now most of the ancient letters they're asking a government official would you please handle this so they'll say i expect you to comply on this well they (laughs) you know that's you're actually writing the governor so i don't know how much he's going to comply but that would be a way they would say it to rebuke Uh, Thanksgivings were very common. Greetings, letters ended with greetings. I greet you, you greet so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so greets you. So they did what are called first, second, and third person greetings. Transition phrases like the what then, um, Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. kinds of phrases. Yeah, and maybe
2: as we read Paul's letters, I guess one Mm -hmm. of the things that that encourages me to do is look for repetitive short phrases that show up in many of his letters And that's probably an indication that there's some kind of formula happening there.
1: Right. Some of it will help us. You know, this is where, you know, good study Bibles and things can help us. But when you listed virtues and vices, you always did them in lists of five. Hmm. So we're not surprised that Paul lists five virtues um, to the Colossians or five Hmm. uh, vices. But what's interesting is they would often do five of them and then have a summary word at the end to kind of summarize them up. So we shouldn't make a big deal that, well, you know, Paul had five things he pointed out, uh, the virtues of the Colossians. It's just not that those were
2: representative.
3: They weren't necessarily exhaustive.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. And so going back to the question we've asked, I think, in pretty much every conversation, (laughs) how does this help us Mm -hmm. read it? Like, what is the, how does this help us better, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. be better Bible readers and I think
1: what we want to do is make sure we notice the things that Paul wanted his original hearers to notice. Mm. When he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. We don't want to spend our time thinking about, well, Paul's concerned about how ignorant these people are. But rather, the point that he wanted to make is his way of saying, you need to know this. So we want to pay attention to what it is Mm. he, he thought it was important for them to know it. And because it is scripture, God is indicating it's important for us to know it as well.
3: So in an earlier conversation, Randy, you said that it was as one of those kind of customary boilerplate things in ancient writing. If they were going to list virtues or vices, they would list them in groups of five, correct? Yes. Okay. So why is the fruit of the Spirit nine?
1: That's a great question, Bill. And the reason is, is because Paul is not listing nine virtues. That's the way we treat them. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. we treat them that way because actually... The problem of English, the word fruit in English is like the word sheep in English. Uh, You have one sheep or you have 12 sheep. Mm -hmm. So the word, there's a technical term for it. My English professor son would know this, but I don't know what it is. But where the word functions as both the singular and the plural together. So in English, the word fruit functions as both a singular and a plural. So we think Paul is talking about nine fruit. But in Greek, it's not that way. There is a singular form and a plural form. Mm -hmm. And Paul uses the singular form. So the Spirit produces one fruit in us and then when he's trying to describe well what's that fruit paul paul is saying well it's a it's a it's a it's a love joy peace patience kindness gentleness goodness <laughs> faithfulness self control kind of fruit So he lists about nine things circling around what he's trying to describe as the Christian character. Really great, important things Mm -hmm. are usually hard to describe. And so Paul uses nine words. He could have used 12. In fact, we could probably think of a few more Christian virtues that we think are essential parts of the life. But he's listed at least nine. The problem is when we switch that to a virtue list, Then what we want to do is pick our favorite ones or Uh more likely cut off the ones that we don't want to have to work with, like that last one. So we (laughs) kind of treat it like, well, you know, as I progress, I haven't made it all the way to self-control. But Paul would have said, no, that's a part of what this singular fruit is.
2: I'm just working on love, joy, and peace right now. <laughs> I'll get to patience later. <laughs> this is a little
1: like the 12 steps
4: in recovery. Right. You know, and, we're at step and four, and that's and it. And it. it's
1: not that. So we were supposed to pick up on that. by If he had listed five, they would have understood that as a virtue oh. list. But Paul is listing all these things as trying to describe what does the work of the Spirit look like. And as soon as we say it that way, we understand why it's a little more vague.
4: Okay, and just to legitimize our focus on love, joy, peace, you know, we do learn what the fruit composite looks like by looking at these individual words. Absolutely. We just don't
1: want to assume we can pick pieces of them, or it's because it's a singular fruit. Mm -hmm. And these are aspects of the fruit. Nor do we want to assume that if we mention something else Paul mentions in his letters that, well, that's not the work of the Spirit. Paul talks about unity all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I think if you said, well, Paul, isn't unity a part of the work? that He would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to describe what does the result of the Spirit in us look like. And he Mm -hmm. says, well, it looks like these things.
3: So when we see like in Colossians, the five virtues and the five vices, we see that, we understand that's kind of boilerplate. But when you have something that goes off of that template, if you will, then we're talking about something different.
1: Yeah, he's not doing a list. He's not doing a list of virtues or a list of vices. He's doing something else in that. But with Paul, when he lists these five virtues, we should also notice he'll have a word at the end that kind of summarizes them. And so that's kind of fun, too, to look at. How does he summarize these virtues oh so
2: that makes me think of like first corinthians 13 me too (laughs) where at the very end he goes but here's the three faith hope and love oh and the greatest is love so it's like a summary statement of everything Mm -hmm. he's just said Mm
1: -hmm. right but he is not doing a a virtue list at that point he is saying these three things are the things that matter because the corinthians have been struggling with gifts and they would have listed other spiritual gifts as the things that really matter Tongues and prophecy and those things. And Paul's saying, no, no, the things that really matter hmm. are those three. Hmm. And the one that matters the most is love. Hmm. So you mentioned love. That's another place where in Paul's letter writing it picks up. We have an English word love. I sometimes hear preachers talk about, well, Greek had four words for love mm-hmm. or five words for love. Mm-hmm and we sort of imply the you know greek those silly greeks they have all these extra words for something that's handled quite well by the word love the problem is actually the opposite english has one word for at least 5 things and actually you could argue probably 8 things that greeks hmm. all had separate words for and
2: mm-hmm. we might say
1: well yeah but they're all one thing well no they're they're yeah. not really mm. they have agape which we're all familiar with that's a love for everyone kind of idea philea where we get Philadelphia kind of thing. That's a love that friends have. Eros is a romantic love. Storge is the love that parents have. Mm. Um, Ludus is kind of a flirtatious, playful love. Pragma is the love of deep commitment, which is kind of interesting. In arranged Mm. marriages and in ancient days, marriages were based on pragma. Not on eros, yeah. for mm-hmm. instance, or based on this long, deep commitment. And people would argue, people who've been married a long time, like Bill and me, we'd say, well, that's why marriages last, is this deep commitment. And then they have fallautia, self love, which is a problem, or mania, which is obsessive love. So they have all these different words for love, for which we have one word. And I would argue the reason we muddle all those things up is that we are trying to describe five to eight different things by one word. So it makes a big mess. It
3: makes a big mess, especially when you're married and you use that one word love for a variety of different things. And your wife is going to make sure you don't mean the same thing by all of those. (laughs) She's going to make sure I don't love pizza like (laughs) I love her.
1: Exactly. Uh Uh (laughs) So, you know, I love my mom. So I love my wife of 42 years. I love my cat. Mm. I love chocolate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the problem is an English language problem, yeah. not a biblical language. And I think it's really important,
3: Randy, because we are native English speakers. We always assume that English has it right and that other languages have to catch right. up with English. Oh, that makes sense We're to We're very yeah. parochial that way. And, and I think it's important <laughs> for us to acknowledge that. English is a mess.
1: I think it would be helpful because it's not just that we are arrogant about our language, but we ourselves can kind of muddle that phrase mm-hmm. up. Some yeah. we're confused in the story of of David in the days of Saul when it said David loved Jonathan. Right. Well, most of the world would say, "Great, that's the way it ought to be." But because of the confusion in our own language, we think, oh, raised eyebrows, that sounds suspicious, when it really shouldn't have at all. I have male friends whom I love deeply. Totally. Um, And that's the way that it ought to be. Mm -hmm. I get confusion from students who will say, but, you know, love is meant to be sexualized. And actually, biblically, the argument would be no love is meant to be sexualized except one. Hmm. So... To go by my list again, I love my wife, I love my mom, I love my cat, you know, I love chocolate, I love Brandon O'Brien that I've co-written books with. So um, I love all those people, but only one is meant to be uh, sexualized. That's a problem of English,
2: not a problem of mm-hmm. the Bible. And a cultural baggage that comes with it, right? Because not not only is it a problem with English, but it's a problem with living in a very sexualized culture, right? right, where any kind of intimacy or relationship that exists over time or whatever. Like there's this natural idea that, well, that'll end up here. Let me push back, Daniel. I think it's our language that got us
1: in that mess. Hmm. Actually, language comes first, and there's a technical theory called the working hypothesis <laughs> for that, but that our language sets our worldview. And so because our language muddles that up, we tend to think everything goes through that hmm. one. So we're squeezing eight different kinds mm-hmm. of love through one mm-hmm. cubbyhole, and it yeah. makes a big mess. Yeah. But language isn't just the problem of that. Sometimes we don't have the right word for it. Sometimes when the Bible uses a word, we're supposed to pick up a lot of stuff by it. Paul, in trying to explain our relationship with God and explain the kingdom of God, he decides to pick two examples from antiquity that everybody understood. And those examples would explain the kingdom of God. Well, one of them we pick up, we don't even think much about it. He used the The metaphor of adoption. Mm -hmm. And we all think, oh, yeah, that's great. Well, that works really well. So we were right (laughs) there with Paul all along. Another one he uses is patronage. We think, wait a minute, you know, I know my Bible. I don't remember Paul even talking about it. When a patron gave you a gift you didn't deserve, it was called a chorus grace. Mm -hmm. Um, And your response to that gift was supposed to be, Pistis, faith or loyalty. Hmm. So when Paul puts those two together, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Everybody would say, oh, so God's our patron. Well, that makes sense. That all fits Mm -hmm. things together. And all of my duties and responsibilities all roll up into that. And everybody understood that. We, you know, for the most part, Mm -hmm. we just Mm -hmm. don't even know Mm -hmm. uh, what to do with that phrase. And yet it was supposed to clarify. It was supposed to explain. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to help.
2: Now, I remember you sharing with us a little bit about patronage, but I'm fuzzy on even what the term patron means. Could you just give like a quick summary? I know it's a much more complex idea, but as quick of a summary as we can for this conversation.
1: I will try. Okay. The whole idea behind that is I have a need that I can't meet. Like the example I love to use is I'm a baker and my bakery burns down. Well, what am I going to do? I can't borrow any money. And my collateral just burned down. But somebody says, you know, I have a friend who could help you that friend is that person's patron okay. so they take me there and you know you hear my story but you you know you're not obligated to help me in any way but you decide you know what I that poor baker, I'm going to help him. So you give me what I need to rebuild my bakery. Well, at that point, we now have a relationship together. Mm -hmm. Now I bake bread for you and all of your people. Okay. You're going to pay me and it's going to be a reciprocal relation. It's going to be great. But my connection to you is that I'm to be loyal to you. Every morning, I'm going to be at your house lined up with all your other clients. And I'm going to ask if you need anything and then I'm going to tell you what my needs are. Hmm. So when Paul explains the kingdom of God, he's saying, among other things, every morning we should be at our patron's door asking what he needs of us mm-hmm. and what we can do for our master. And yet that sounds like a, a, a transaction. You know, it sounds
4: like a venture capitalist has invested in you and you've got to pay an interest and da 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 da. But the gift of God is free. Right. So that changes the patron relationship too, does it not?
1: I, well, I think it, it turns it from a venture capitalist into a patron relationship, which in our culture isn't necessarily positive. But in most cultures in the world today, it's a very positive oh. thing. And so it is a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not a transaction. From now on, I'm part of the household of that patron.
2: And so protection comes with that. If your bakery burns down again, oh, yeah. right? like there's a right. lot of things. That or come... let's
1: say the dumb barley sellers raise the price too much. Um, what am I going to do? Well, I go to my patron and I say, the barley sellers are charging too much. And he'll say, I'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. And he'll reach out to the patron of the barley growers mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll work
2: it out. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that again. Mm-hmm. But I, I do have to admit, I would probably... Take a few points off of Paul's letter for not fleshing that out. It would have been nice for them to go ahead and just, you know, explain a little bit of that in the letter.
1: Well, it reminds us once again, we are reading someone else's mail and that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and they would have said, Oh, yeah, okay. One of the things to keep in mind is we are looking over the shoulders of the Ephesians and reading the letter. Yeah. And so there's just going to be parts that mm-hmm. we wish he had said more to. Now, one of the things to keep in mind, as an American in the 21st century, there are parts I wish he would elaborate on. Mm-hmm. My Kenyan friends of the 21st century have other parts <laughs> yeah. that they, they wish he to learn. And then, say, an American from the 23rd century, should the Lord tarry, would have other parts mm-hmm. they wish he So, in the end, God has given us enough, but we always wish there were more.
3: And it kind of goes back to what we talked about at length when we were discussing misreading Scripture with Western eyes, and that's the things that are left unsaid, Mm -hmm. because his first hearers didn't need all that explained to them because that was the world they lived in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Language is a tricky thing. Words often take on new meanings over time through translation across cultures, and I'm so grateful that we can have these conversations with scholars and experts like Randy Richards, who help explain some of this for us. You're listening to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries, conversations that are made possible because of the generous donations from listeners like you. Now We are only able to create and distribute and make Discover the Word and all the other Bible engagement resources Our Daily Bread Ministries offers available because you help cover the costs. So please go to discovertheword.org If you'd like to partner with us financially, go to discovertheword.org and look for the Donate tab. And now let's wrap up the first part of this two-part podcast with more
1: surprising discoveries about Paul, the letter writer. So I was introducing myself to a new group of college students. I kind of did it the way I've traditionally done it. And I said, you know, my life was changed by what happened on a hill far away long ago. And I could tell by the glazed eyes and the lost (laughs) looks that they had no idea what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Old Rugged Cross. Yes, the Old Rugged Cross. And it had worked so well before I moved to Indonesia. Back in the earlier days, it worked because when I quote a hymn that everybody loves, then not only do they know what I'm talking about, that it was by what Christ had done on the cross, but it also brings in all of the good feelings they have about That old hymn Mm -hmm. connects me to those good feelings. Mm -hmm. So it's a very positive speaking technique, and it's a very, very old speaking technique. In fact, it's one that Paul used. He was talking to the Philippians, and he was saying, you should have a humble attitude. You ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. You need to have a humble attitude. And then he thought of an old hymn that they all liked, that talked about Christ having a humble attitude. Mm. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And then he starts quoting the hymn. So Paul quotes it because it is, uh, brings to mind, oh yeah, well, we we really should. I was speaking to a church one time and talking about that Christ, God, dies on the cross. And, and I could tell I'd lost him. And I said, amazing love, how canst it be mm. that thou my God should die for me and they all thought oh yeah well there you go that's mm-hmm. right yeah we
3: don't believe the bible but we like hymns <laughs> <laughs> or worship
1: choruses right? yeah there you go yeah. and so by quoting something he establishes rapport with his audience but we're talking about paul's a letter writer and how his letters were written, and we mentioned he would bring in a secretary, he'd have colleagues around them, sometimes they would be co-senders of the letters, sometimes they would just be other guests who were in the house, mission team members, uh, but they're not officially writing the letters, so they may have some sort of input, like Daniel mentioned, he was working on a sermon in the car. And some of his car mates chimed in and some of that input kind of worked its way into the sermon. So the way it would work in letter writing is Paul would be writing, he would think of this hymn, well, rather than just stand there and quote it, or sit there, and quote it to a secretary who is you know, writing, scribbling rapidly on wax tablets as, as best he can, instead of doing that, he would say, I'll, I'll give you that snippet later to put in. So sometimes one of the telltale marks we can have that something has been inserted like that is if you pull it out, the text will flow very smoothly without it because in the mind of Paul, he's continuing that thought that's moving along and it got put in either at that moment or it it might get inserted later. The other telltale mark would be since that hymn wasn't composed For Paul's occasion with the Philippians, it might go a little bit different direction Mm -hmm. than what Paul's doing. Paul remembered it because he wants them to have the same humble attitude that Christ did. But our listeners who who know the hymn know it starts with Christ humbled himself all the way down to death. Paul adds, even death on the cross. And then the hymn goes on to talk about how then Christ is exalted to finally having a name above all names. Well, that's actually kind of the opposite point that Paul wants to make about exaltation, but he remembered it because of the first part, the part about Christ wanting to humble himself.
4: So, so I, I'm i following you, but I'm also perplexed at usually insertions are from scripture itself, like prophetic insertions, like you think of the gospels and they'll quote Isaiah or something right. like that, or a psalm. Right. So how often in scripture do we see the insertion of extra Biblical material, you know, something that's not, quote, inspired, but now it gets Now deserted. it is. Yeah. Yeah,
1: now it is. Yeah. At least that part is. Mm. And Paul will quote a snippet out of a Greek philosopher. Well, it doesn't then, by default, make everything that Greek philosopher ever wrote inspired. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. let me quote Paul here again. God forbid. But that one phrase, by virtue of being brought in, falls under the umbrella of inspiration. Mm. Okay. Now We're talking about
3: Paul, obviously. But in the letter of Jude, he quotes from a couple of apocryphal books. Right. Would it be the same kind of thing, that those were the parts of the books the Holy Spirit wanted to preserve? Interesting. And so that was included by Jude, uh, whereas that doesn't mean the whole rest of that apocryphal book was inspired. It's just the part that was preserved.
1: Absolutely. And we need to know why it was put in there. If it's there as an illustration, then it's an inspired document as an illustration. But— you know, then we don't want to start building theology out of that one little snippet that's in there. When it was done as an illustration in the case of Jude, it was that, wow, if Michael isn't even brave to confront evil forces, but says, we'll let God handle it, then Mm -hmm. you, that Jude was writing to you folks, ought not to be so brave about confronting evil forces. And it might be a good reminder to folks who who go around rebuking Satan all the time, that sort of thing. I think, I don't know, Michael wasn't even brave enough to do that. (laughs) Uh So in quoting this stuff, it picks up a snippet. So another example of where that occurs, I think, is in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about his various hardships and how he wants acceptance. It's in 2 Corinthians 6, and he's wanting them to make sure that they receive Paul. Paul had been kind of pushed out by the Corinthians to some extent, by these false teachers. And he says, look, you need to open your hearts to me. Open wide your hearts in verse 11, 2 Corinthians 6. Open wide your hearts, okay? We're not withholding our affection from you, okay? Hmm. I speak to you like my children. So open wide your hearts. And then down in Chapter 7, a few verses down, verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. And he continues that same conversation about making room for us in your hearts. The passage in between is very self-contained. And suddenly is this passage about don't be yoked with unbelievers. And you don't want to say it's kind of off point, but it does seem a bit odd. I think this is an example where Paul has written a draft. The secretaries come back. They're hearing the draft being read. And at this point, the opening wide your hearts, opening wide your hearts, opening wide your hearts has made Paul or someone on the team, perhaps Timothy, think, well, yeah, but I mean, don't open your hearts too wide. (laughs) You know, um, don't be yoked with unbelievers. This snippet Sounds like the kind of advice a young Timothy as a Jewish boy raised in a very pagan city, the kind of thing his mama would have drilled into him about don't be yoked with an unbeliever because it causes all kinds of problems. Be careful who you fall in love. Be careful who you open your hearts with. And God in his wisdom has said that. Open wide your hearts. Absolutely. But do be careful don't open mm-hmm. your heart too widely, too indiscriminately. But that seam we might call it, can be explained rather than this jarring piece. It's something that God, in his wisdom, has had put into the letter. But it may have been put in as the revision process goes on. So Paul would draft out a portion of a letter. They would talk about it here it read. They would add some more, correct some things they didn't like. Paul would never let the letter go out. I mean, just knowing Paul from what you see in his letters in front of the book of Acts. He's not going to let a single word go out he doesn't agree with. But he's going to tweak some words in the draft. The secretary's going to make those notes, and then they're going to go on a little further. And so they'll add some more to it. Second Corinthians, if Paul had written it from start to finish, just dictating it, syllable by syllable, which they could do in antiquity, it's extremely rare, but if they could, it would have taken them like eight hours. And when you read Paul's letters, they don't read like he wrote... I, Paul, an apostle, <laughs> called... I mean, the you know, you wear yourself out just trying to go through a letter like that. So Paul's has the energy and the drive of, of speaking, and the poor secretary is keeping up. But they would have rewrites and edits and going back. So these things commonly happened during a time when they had a break, and it may have been written over a two or three week or even a one-month period. As they would come back, they'd hear it read aloud, and they would make
2: changes and keep editing it. See, to me, that I think what's striking me is I think it's the the term letter, I think, is what throws us off maybe the most. Yeah, maybe because an we essay think, or something. <laughs> yeah, because what it is, it's like a research paper mm-hmm. or a book, or there's so many things that we Article. write in a very similar way yeah. where we don't just throw the first thing down on paper and then ship it. That's we good. take time to think about it and mull on it and talk to others about it and quote a source that says it better than we can and things like that. So yeah, it's like, yeah. I think that's maybe what's striking me is typically when we think of a letter, yeah. we picture like an email or even worse, a text that we throw <laughs> out and then we're like, Ew. yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Daniel, I think you've done a
1: beautiful illustration with that. If we imagined letters like Third John was a trifle long. Philemon was a trifle long for an ancient letter. And they're short. Well, we think of them (laughs) as short. They would have thought those as very typical. That fills up a sheet of papyrus, a sheet of paper. So that we can imagine done in one sitting. But Paul's letters, you said, well, gosh, the way we're talking about it's more like a book. Paul's letters were more like books. And I want us to talk about that later. But these things were long. They were involved. They were carefully written. Some of our listeners who are well-versed in a scripture may say, well, wait a minute, I can remember some lines in Paul that don't seem to have editing in them. He says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Oh, wait, wait! I did baptize the house of Stephanus, But other than that, I don't know anybody that I baptized. Well, what we find are examples from other writers mm-hmm. of that same sort of thing. It's actually very clever rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Cicero does it, mm-hmm. and scholars of Cicero will say, every adjective in Cicero is carefully chosen mm-hmm. and carefully written. Never has a master rhetorician plied his trade as skillfully as Cicero. And yet Cicero will say, well, um, and then he'll do what looks like a spontaneous correction. Well, what Paul has been arguing is it doesn't matter who baptized who. It doesn't matter. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. But there's some people he did baptize that he doesn't want to offend. Mm-hmm. The house of Stephanus, who's a prominent house. Well, I did baptize houses. Other than that, I don't, I don't know. And so it gives very much the impression, without offending Stephanus, that Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you follow Apollo or you follow Cephas or you follow Paul or you you know it doesn't that doesn't matter. And so that was his main point. So it's just careful rhetoric. So the take-home we take out of this is that Paul didn't dash these things off on the spur Mm -hmm. of the moment. These were carefully thought of. And Elisa has pointed out several times, you know, we'll agonize over how a phrase is put together. Well, we should. I think in Paul writing it, he would agonize occasionally over how a phrase was put together. He wrote it very carefully, so we ought to read it very carefully.
0: listening to Discover the Word as we wrap up the first part in our two-episode series about Paul, the letter writer. Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day have been your study partners alongside author and scholar Randy Richards, who is sharing his extensive research on first-century letter writing and challenging some of our assumptions about what that was like. And trust me, this isn't done. There are aspects of this you've likely never thought about before. And so don't miss part two of these conversations in our next podcast. I think it may change the way you read this part of the New Testament. Well, Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, that challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, And always point us to Discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hettinger. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.